Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Ashley Smith. Good morning, everybody, again. <laughs> um, today's message is a continuation of the series that we started last week. Um, this series, we're going through our discipleship process, you know, attracted to Jesus. Um, does anyone remember what we looked at last week? What was the, the central key theme? Started with C. It was covenant, covenant. And we looked at the covenant and we saw God as a covenant-keeping God, a faithful God to his own covenant, and he fulfills the covenant himself. Um, Today's message is going to be a two-part sermon series, actually. So the first half we're going to be addressing this week, and the next time I preach we're going to be addressing the second half. And today's message, as you probably guessed by the video, is the message of atonement, because covenant and atonement go hand in hand. Um, I'm going to give you guys a bit of an illustration to, to, to start with. Let's just say that I was going for a swim in a river. And I'm going to pick on Isaac here because he sat down the front. And I'm going for a swim in the river and there's the river, the current is going really fast and I'm drowning. And Isaac sees me drowning, struggling to swim. So Isaac jumps in as an expression of love. He jumps in and he saves me. He proves two things to me. He proves, number one, that he saved me. And secondly... He shows that he cares about me or he loves me in a brotherly way. But if I'm just swimming in the river by myself, enjoying it, it's not torrential, there's nothing wrong with it, and then Isaac jumps into the river and he attempts to save me when I'm just there swimming, do I need saving? Would it be a demonstration of love? No, I think it would be the weirdest thing in the world, particularly if I didn't know Isaac. And this is a thing for atonement. This is a thing for salvation. Salvation and atonement are only realized and only actualized, number one, if we needed it, and number two, if we needed it, then we see the demonstration of God's love. And let me just make this point here. If sin wasn't so much of an issue and God could have swept sin under the carpet, then him coming and die wouldn't have been a demonstration of love if we didn't need it. Does that make sense? We would have been us swimming in the water. God could have dealt with it. He didn't need to come, but we were drowning. And there's two questions that, that, that confront us when it comes to the atonement. And these are the two questions. Number one, why did God jump in? And how does God jump in? Why did God deem it necessary to come to this fallen world and to live a life and to die a death and to rise again? And how does he do it? I'm going to show you something from the scriptures, and I invite you to open with me. Some of you, this may be something that you've heard before or something that you've known before, but we're going to cover this because it's an essential theme in which we need to look at before we can understand what atonement is. So open with me to Isaiah chapter 59. And when you're there, say amen so I know that you're there. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2. Today we're going to be doing a bit of going from page to page to page. We're going to flick through our Bibles. Okay, good old Bible study. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2, the scriptures read this. Is everyone there? Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. This is a powerful statement from the, from the prophet Isaiah. He's saying here in this text that the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. All throughout scripture, you see that God's hand is synonymous with his saving power. You see it with the children of Israel when they're in bondage to Egypt. And we looked at this last week, that God redeems them and he bears them on eagles' wings and he brings them to himself. 
And the scriptures tell us here that God's hand is never shortened. In other words, God's saving power is never limited by sin. I mean, imagine what you would think of your Savior if he could not save you from sin. The Lord's hand is not shortened that he cannot save, nor his ear heavy that he cannot hear. God's ability to save is always the same. He can reach into any situation, no matter how dreadful or dark it may be, and he can save anyone at anywhere, at any place, and at any time. But the next verse poses a problem, because the word but is there. It says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. The Bible says that God is able to save, but there is something that limits his saving power, and that is sin, and that is sin cherished. Can God attempt to reconcile us back into his kingdom if he doesn't deal with the sin problem? Sin separates church. Sin causes a breakdown in the relationship, and we all know this. You think about the Ten Commandments, which are the demonstration of God's character and a demonstration of who God is. The Ten Commandments aren't arbitrary laws which God says, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. They're guidelines, not just guidelines. They're not suggestions, they're commandments, absolutely. But they're there to protect us and to give us the best possible relationship that we could have with God and with humanity. And let me make a point here. God says, you shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself graven images or idols. You shall not use my name in vain, and you shall remember my Sabbath day to keep it holy. How do you think your relationship with God will be if you follow all those those commands? That's going to be pretty good. Particularly if the Holy Spirit is working in you to willing to do his good pleasure, and you're not keeping them as a means to receive atonement yourself. And on the other hand, the rest of the six commandments, thou shalt not... Um, steal, kill, uh, honor your mother and your father, do not commit adultery, etc., etc. I tell you what, if you go to someone and you steal something from it and they find out, your relationship's not going to be very good with them. So sin is always a breakdown with the relationship. Now notice in the text just here that it says, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Who does the separating here? Is it God or is it humanity? So God stays in the same place. Humanity drifts from God because it cherishes the thing which separates it from God. Now, how do you think God feels towards sin? He hates it. How do we sometimes feel towards sin? Sometimes we love it. Sometimes. So God hates sometimes the thing that we love. And the thing that God hates is inside the thing that God loves. So how does God deal with the issue of sin? Ah, this is the process of atonement. But I want to let you know before we jump into the next step, how does God jump in? That before the problem, God outlines the promise. Because God wants us to know that no matter how difficult our problem may be, his power is greater still. Yes, the power of sin is great, but the power of the Redeemer is even greater. Jump with me to our next point. In Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11, the question here is, how does God jump in? How does God jump in? Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11. Now, this is 
a text that was given to the children of Israel um, in relation to their sacrificial sanctuary services. It's not the first time the word atonement is mentioned in Scripture. It's mentioned beforehand. But it's mentioned specifically here in this text in a powerful way because it's connected with something. The Scripture's on the screen here, but I'm going to read it out. It says this, and I've underlined and bolded some key things in the text. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the what? It is in the blood. And I have given it to you. Now, let me just stop there. Who has given it to you? It's God who has given it to them. Upon the altar to make what? To make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So right here in this text, God demonstrates three powerful points. The first one is life. That the life is found in what? In the blood. Is Jesus here talking in this text when God gives this command to Moses? Is he talking about the blood that is pulsing through the body here? Is that what he's getting at? No, he's talking about blood that is shed. Because blood is life, and blood that is shed is a life that is given. Does that make sense? So here in this whole process of atonement, we see the necessity of a substitution. We see the necessity of a sacrifice. Point number two, atonement can only be provided through blood. Because it's only through a substitutionary sacrifice and someone giving their life in exchange for another that the sin issue can actually be dealt with. And we're going to have a look at this as we continue our study today. Point number three, it was God-given. Now, the sacrificial system church wasn't something that the Israelites had borrowed from the pagan nations around them. It's not like, oh, let's take this from Baal, let's take this from Asherah, let's take this from here and there. No, the sacrificial system was something that was given by God for the people. And when the children of Israel took their animal, they took their lamb, they took whatever it was, the sanctuary, and they confessed their sins on the head of that animal, and they took the life of the animal, and the priest caught the blood. The animal was put on the altar, and the blood was taken into the sanctuary. It wasn't them appeasing the wrath of God. It wasn't them trying to placate and and to earn favor in the sight of God, because from the text it says that the blood and the altar and the atonement is given by who? The atonement is given by God. The children of Israel didn't borrow this symbol and this system from the pagan nations, but it was given by God. And what the pagan nations used to do around them is they would actually take their sacrifices to the temple or they would take their children to the temple and they would sacrifice them to earn favor from the God. So it's like the humans are bringing the sacrifices to receive mercy from God. But the sacrificial system that God gave was different. Because God gave the blood, God gave the system, and basically God was providing atonement. It wasn't them appeasing. Does that make sense? And the word atonement in the Hebrew is kapar. Kapar. Now, it it means a number of things. It means, I'll just show you here, it means to cover over, to pacify, or to make propitiation. We're going to have a look at that a little bit more next week. But when God says that he makes atonement for the soul, he's covering over a debt or he's pacifying, or he's making propitiation. Now, I want to make this point, and I want to emphasize this, and I want you to focus on what I'm about to say. The product of atonement is reconciliation. Okay, what's the product of atonement? Reconciliation. It's not the means of atonement. Okay, see if you can focus on what I'm saying here. Now, 
It's if reconciliation was the means of atonement, it couldn't be because the relationship was already damaged. Does that make sense? So God has to restore the relationship before reconciliation. Does that make sense? So reconciliation is the product, it's not the means. And atonement doesn't create a love that God has for us, but atonement is born out of the heart of God, which is love. And all it says in, um, in a book called um, Sons and Daughters of God, she says the very system of sacrifices was devised by Christ. Who gave the sacrificial system? Jesus. And given to Adam as typifying a saviour to come. So who was the sacrificial system pointing towards? Jesus. All the system, all the services, everything was pointing towards and it fulfilled itself in Christ. Who would bear the sins of the world. Now remember what sin does, church. What does sin do? It separates. So Jesus takes upon himself the separating agent. That's what it was trying to teach them. And he would die for its redemption. 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 Now in the New Testament, it doesn't use the word atonement specifically. It doesn't. But for the New Testament writers, they knew that atonement was symbolized and it was embodied in the cross of Calvary. And there's many different words that are used throughout the New Testament that demonstrate atonement. Sacrifice, ransom, redemption, covenant, reconciliation. And even the word victory is a demonstration of atonement in the New Testament. They don't use the word specifically, but they mention it. In all their writings, you can see this underlying current of salvation and redemption and reconciliation through the blood that Jesus spilt. It's the key theme of all their writings, even though they don't mention it. And you just look to the cross and they knew that Jesus had died for me and I had salvation through him. And what I don't want to do today is I don't want to come and I don't want to share this means of atonement or this definition of atonement because who can capture the most wonderful and powerful theological term in all of Scripture and bottle it down into a 40-minute sermon, I hope I don't go any longer than that, and say, this is what it is, I found it. We are finite human beings. And it's like us standing on the seashore looking out to the ocean and saying, I see all the way across the ocean to the other side. We can only see so far, and there's a lot more beyond what we can see. But God has made known in his word what we can see and what we can't see. And it was very, very clear for the New Testament writers that Jesus had provided atonement. Now, the word atonement was actually coined by an Englishman, and it means at one, to bring together to gain. You know... The thing with atonement is atonement provides many different things. I don't know if you've ever looked up to a rainbow before. You probably have. And there's all the seven different colors of the rainbow. And you will always get in trouble when you come to atonement and you look at one of the colors or one of the themes of atonement and you forget the rest. Atonement is so broad, it's so vast, it's so encompassing that it takes all of it and puts it all together. But even then, there's so much more. So let's not focus on a single color. Let's focus on the complexity and the completeness of atonement. I mean, we could spend the rest of the year, church, looking at atonement. It's huge. But I've only given two sermons, and I don't really give it justice at all. But anyways, I'm going to share with you guys probably the most powerful chapter in all the Old Testament when it comes to atonement. But before I do so, I want to share with you guys a story. 
there was a man by the name of Joseph Wolfe, 200 or so years ago. And this man was born into a Jewish family, into a Jewish home. His dad was a rabbi in the local synagogue, and he was living in Germany. And as a young boy, his father was very, very protective of what his young boy would hear because he was worried about being, you know, taken up and put into Christian circles and becoming a Christian. And that would be a great shame to the family. So the father would go at great lengths to protect his son from mingling with Christians. Now, you've got to understand that in Germany, there was a lot of Lutherans. So the father would always keep an eye on his son. But one day the father is going out and the father says, son, you know, the, the man's coming to milk the cows. I want you to keep an eye on him to make sure he does a good job of it. So what happens is the father goes out and Joseph is, is watching the Lutheran man milk the cow. I don't know if that's what they do. I'm assuming that's what they do. He milks the cow. And Joseph is watching the little boy. And this Lutheran man, he just can't help himself. You know, most Christians can't help themselves. Am I right? And he says to the young boy, he says, Son, what do you think of Isaiah 53? And the young boy is like, Isaiah 53? I haven't heard of it. And then the man opens up and reads it to them. Actually, you know that Jewish people actually aren't encouraged to read that chapter. Okay? There's a reason why. And he reads this chapter and he relates these verses to him. And the little boy is confused because he's taught that Jesus was an imposter. But from these verses, he sees from the text very clearly that it was Jesus' mission and his purpose to come and to die. And he had questions, and guess who he went to when he had his questions? He wanted to answer those questions. Guess who he went to? He went to Dad. Guess what Dad did? Shouldn't be reading that. He didn't give him many answers. But that led him on a journey of study and of growth, and he found Jesus through it all. I mean, and it's not just him, but it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands, and may I say even millions of people, millions of Jews who have come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ through this chapter because it is the power of God unto salvation. So open up with me to Isaiah chapter 53. I'd encourage you to actually read, I mean, not just to read it, but to memorize this chapter. It's powerful. Starting in verse 1 and going to... Verse 3, let's read the text. It says, Who has believed our reports? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, what's the arm of the Lord again? It's his saving power. So right here we find that this is God's way of saving humanity. Now, keep that in mind. Store that in your minds just here. This is God's designated way to save sinners. We're coming back to that. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. You notice in the text it says he has no form or comeliness and when we see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. Who is this talking about? This is talking about Jesus. Now, we see this as talking about Jesus as he humbles himself and he steps down from his throne and he takes away all his glory and he comes into the likeness of men. If anyone had an inherent right to pride, guess who it would be? It would be God himself. 
But here we see Jesus lays it all aside and he becomes a man. And not just a man, he wasn't a Brad Pitt of a man. So he wasn't walking around Jerusalem with his hair flowing in the wind and people just following him because he was so beautiful. He was nothing extraordinary physically. He was just an ordinary human being. Now I want to ask you a question. Was that a massive humbling step? For the God of glory to step down. Now I want you to keep in your mind there's a word that's used there. It says he has no formal comeliness. Now keep your finger in Isaiah chapter 53 and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 verses um, 6 to 8. Philippians 2, 6 to 8. Hey Zane. This is talking about Jesus. It says, who being in the, what? Being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be one. To be equal with God but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man. You see that form word again? Jesus, in Isaiah 53, it says he has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. In this verse just here in in Psalms chapter 2, this was actually a song that the early church would come together and they would actually sing. This was a hymn. And in the hymn, it says, he had the form of a bondservant. It's borrowing from Isaiah just here. And he coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, there's something that, we, something that story writers use when they're writing a story to emphasize a point or to build the tension or the climax, or the focus of the story, they repeat things twice. I'll use an illustration. Let's just say, I was looking out the window during the church service, full stop. Not listening to the sermon, full stop. And as I was looking out the window, so you repeat it twice, I saw. So it creates this focal point, it creates this excitement, it creates this energy about what's about to be said. This is the intentional use of the Greek here in in Psalms chapter 2. Look what it says. They repeat the same thing twice. And you see it at the end of verse 7, talking about Jesus. It says that he's coming in the likeness of men, full stop. And being found in the appearance of men, it repeats itself. Because right here, the key focal point of this whole entire psalm, this whole entire hymn just here, is on what's about to be said. And what's about to be said The scripture read this. It says he humbled himself down. So previously we've seen that Jesus is God. He steps down as he becomes a man, becomes a bondservant in the likeness of man. Then he humbles himself and he becomes obedient to the point of death and even death on the cross. Now this is a point that I want to make with you, church, and I want you to capture it. Was it enough for Jesus to come and live a holy life and to show us that God is love without dying on the cross. Was it enough? No. And the reason why is this. Remember in Isaiah 51, 53 and verse 1, it says, it says, this is the arm of the Lord, the saving power of the Lord. We're about to see what he says here, but in the text just here, The key focal point of the whole entire psalm wasn't the fact that Jesus was God and he stepped into human flesh. That was a part of it. 
but the whole focal point of this hymn for the early church was the fact that God became man and suffered. He humbled himself. He became obedient unto death and even death on the cross. Jesus fulfilled the second Adam role. He became man, but he didn't just live life as a man. He died for man. Does that make sense? If Jesus did not step into that sacrificial place, then there is no way salvation can be attained because this is the way in which God does it. Jesus is God, which means he has nothing to grasp because God has everything, doesn't he? It's not like you can come to God and say, God, I'd give you this, 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 this. God has everything. There's nothing more that God needs that he does not have. Does that make sense? But Jesus comes in the likeness of men. Now he has everything to lose. Everything to lose. As he journeys that thing called life and as he becomes the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, at any moment he could have tripped up and Satan, he tempted and tempted and tempted, but Jesus was victorious. He battled the life all throughout his earthly walk and then he died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. That is the way in which God saved. The life wasn't enough. Jesus let go of all the claims and the rights in which he had. He just let it go. And he humbled himself. He came in the form of man. He had no comeliness that we should desire him. And not just that church, but he was despised and rejected of men. He wasn't just one of us, but he was the bottom of the bottom. He went to the very pit. He went down, 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 down until you could go down no further. Jesus' life wasn't just the life of Rome in the earth doing miracles and teaching wonderful stories and saying, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. Jesus came to die because that's the only way salvation could be yours because that's how he deals with the sin problem. Jump with me back to the book of Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 verses 4 to 7 As we read these four texts just here, or these three texts, I want you to focus on how many times the word us, we, or our are used in them. Okay, Us, we, or our. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. How many times did you count the words us, we, or our? At least ten times. The significance here from the, from the, the, the prophet Isaiah is the focus point in his whole messianic um, prophecy just here on Jesus taking your punishment, on Jesus taking your shame, on Jesus taking your condemnation, on Jesus taking your guilt. It is. 
He wants you to know that Jesus was whipped, Jesus was beaten, Jesus was chastised, not because he was a good man, but because he took our shame, because he took our guilt, because he took the sin problem that separated us from being reconciled to God, and he deals with it. Behold the Lamb of God that does what? That takes away the separating agent, that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was bruised, Jesus was wounded, and Jesus received stripes. When Jesus received all those things, what came out of his paws? Blood. What's the blood a symbol of? Life. And blood that is shed is a life that is given. And from this text just here, we find that Jesus' sacrifice was a substitutionary sacrifice. And what that means was Jesus took your place because he took, takes your sin and this is the beauty of the gospel he didn't have to but he chose to and it says by his stripes we are what that's talking about the relationship reconciliation has been done we have been brought back into harmony with the father again and the son we've been brought back into the fellowship of heaven by his stripes by his wounds, by his brokenness, you are restored to that which we were before the fall. And there's some interesting insights that Ellen White gives onto this, that after all this is said and done, we will actually be nearer to God after the fall than what we were before. Because Jesus forever bears his human form, glorified human form, but he will forever have those holes in his hands and the scar in his side, And he will forever, amongst the Godhead, we have one who represents humanity. And God takes his new Jerusalem and situates it it right here on earth. God says, the planet that has rebelled now becomes the center of my kingdom and the center of my government. We are closer to God after the fall than what we were before. What we mess up, God fixes. It says... To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, we see the way in which God saves. Jesus comes. God comes. And this is the beautiful thing. In all the pagan cultures, the humans would bring the sacrifice or the humans would be the sacrifice. Who's the sacrifice in this? It's God. It's God. He takes it. He experiences it. And he dies. Well, not God dies, but... He dies. Let's jump down to a couple of verses here, to verse 10 and 11. I'm just going to skip through some of this for the sake of time. It says, Yet it pleased, in verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Now focus on this next sentence. It says, When you make his soul an offering for sin, sacrificial system is spoken of here, He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. He shall bear their iniquities. 
Jesus is an offering for sin. So we've established, number one, that Jesus lets go of his, of his divinity. He lets go of his glory. He lets go of his authority. He lets go of it all. And he comes in the likeness of men. And when he comes in the likeness of men, he stretches out his arms on Calvary. And one hand was pierced and the other hand was pierced and his feet were pierced. He reaches out and he separates our sins as far as the east is from the west. He deals with it. And then in this text just here, we find that he does something also. He hands over. Now from these texts just here, we see that there's a key word that's used. He gives his life as an offering for sin. And through his offering to sin, he will justify how many? Many. Jump with me to Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. And this is our last text for today. Is everyone following me so far? This is the key point. If you don't remember anything of what I've shared today, I want you to remember this. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, look what Jesus says. These are the words I've read. They're Jesus' words. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Scholars looking on have said what Jesus said just here wasn't just casual words that he was saying. He was intentionally quoting those promises in the book of Isaiah. Jesus understood himself as a suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. Now, I want to ask you a question this afternoon, church. And the question is this. What is ransom? In the Greco-Roman culture, a ransom literally means ransom in the Greek, lutron. And a ransom was a price that was paid to free a captive or to free a slave. Okay? No wonder when Paul is talking to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, he says, you have been bought with a price. You have been bought with a price. And he says it twice. And that rhymes. I didn't intentionally try to rhyme that. You were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. This theme of ransom. This theme of purchase is what Jesus believed himself to be doing and what Paul believed to be the reality and the fulfillment of Jesus' life and death. But it's not just what the Christians believed in the early church. When God redeemed Israel through the Exodus account, they saw that as a purchase. They saw that as a ransom. They saw that as redemption themselves. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, it says, Knowing that you have not been redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus lets go of himself. Jesus stretches out for you. And Jesus hands over the payment of sin. He hands it over and he purchases you from the grave and from death. And he gives you a life that you never deserve to live. If you don't have that, then you don't have atonement. Because God's saving hand was a substitutionary sacrifice where he took our griefs, he took our sorrows, And Jesus' sorrows were not his own sorrows. They were your sorrows. And as you would go to the sanctuary in 
times of old and you would lay your hands on the animal and you would confess your sins onto the perfect spotless animal and it would die in your place. So too was Jesus as he hung between heaven and earth and we come and we confess our sins. He takes them, he takes the punishment, he pays the price and he opens the door and says, come on in. Reconciliation is the product of atonement. It doesn't create in God's heart a love for humanity, but it was born out of the love that God had for humanity. There's a statement I want to read to you from Selected Messages. It says this, Justice demands that sin be not merely pardoned, but the death penalty must be executed. God, in the gift of his only begotten Son, met both these requirements. By dying in man's stead, Christ exhausted the penalty and provided a pardon. In John chapter 12 and verse 27, and we looked at this today in our Sabbath school class up the front here, Jesus, towards the last four days of his life, he says, should I say to my father, save me from this hour? Do you know what he says next? It is for this hour that I have come. For Jesus... The cross was the focal point of his whole life. The focal point of Jesus' life wasn't God stepping into human flesh, no. It wasn't him coming in the likeness of men. It was him humbling himself and being obedient even unto death and even death on the cross. That was Jesus' mission. Church, he came to reconcile you and in order to reconcile you, he must die. And in dying, he must take your place if you want forgiveness. And in taking your place, he must pay the penalty of sin. If you take away this from Jesus, then you take away his glory. I'd like to invite the the singers to come up the front to sing our final song. And as we sing this final song, I want you to think of what Jesus has done. Not for abstract people in times past. Not at some isolated event that happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus hung on the cross. But it was a time in history where Jesus came, Jesus let go, Jesus stretched out, and Jesus handed over so you might be saved. Jesus has provided atonement for you. There's a story I have to share. I wasn't going to share it. But then I just heard someone play something and the preacher in me just got going. (laughs) This was during the French Revolution. There was a young man by the name of Jacques. And during the French Revolution, it was a terrible period of time in French history. It happened 200 or so years ago. And this man by the name of Jacques, he believed differently to the organization of the day. Rose-Pierre was going out and throwing people into prison under suspicion of, you know, subscribing to the, the royalist um, belief. You know, we believe in the, the royal family. If you believed in the royal family and tried to advance the royal family, you were thrown into prison. And they actually invented the guillotine during the French Revolution. And Jacques was, um, Jacques was targeted as one of these conspirators to the revolution. And he was thrown in the prison and he was awaiting his death. And someone can play a little bit of music in the background here. And here he is in prison. And he's awaiting his death. He's awaiting his fate. And it wasn't a maybe, but it was a definite. It will happen. And here he was and he realized that the next day was his time. The time was up. And here he was laying on his bed and he was looking at his cell window through the bars and the, and the dungeon was just crowded. 
And he had a bed and he knew that tomorrow was going to be the, the day in which he would die. And he's looking out the window and he realizes that this is his last life in which he's, last time he's ever going to see the moon, the last rest he's ever going to have. And he's at absolute peace because he, he, he died standing up for something that he believed in and he falls asleep that night. And as the night hours pass on, there's another man, there's an older man. Joseph, maybe you can get on the piano, mate. There's an older man who's wandering through the dungeon and and he has a mission, he has an intention, he has a plan. He's looking for somebody and he's going into each and every room, each and every cell and he's looking around, looking around, looking around, trying to find someone in the dungeon. He's a prisoner himself but he's looking for someone. And he looks into this room and he sees the moon shining on this young man's face and he recognizes the face. And he runs into the room and he kneels beside the bed of this young man who's sleeping and yes, it is who he was looking for. It's his son. And as he kneels beside his son's bed, he talks to the man who is in the cell and the man says, yes, our cell, we're going to punishment tomorrow. We're going to be dying. And the father thinks, what can I do to save my son? He doesn't shake his son. He doesn't slap him around and wake him up and say, let's leave because there was no other way. He kneels beside his bed and he thinks and he thinks and he thinks. Morning comes around and the guard comes to the door and the old man jumps up before the sun's awake and he runs to the door with the rest of the cellmates and he says that his name is Jacques and they tick him off the list and they put him in the chains and they take him out to the cart and they put him on the cart and they take him through the seat, the street and they're throwing tomatoes and rotten things at him and the father's going to execution and he goes to the guillotine. The young man wakes up and he realizes that his name hasn't been called. His name hasn't been called. And someone who was watching that night said, yeah, there was an old man kneeling beside your bed and when your name was called, he took your place. He took your place. He took your place. A couple of weeks later, Rose Pierre was killed himself, a victim of the revolution in which he was a part of. And everyone in the prisons were set free. Where do you think the first place was that Jacques went home to? He went home. He didn't stop to look at the scenery on the way. He didn't stop to smell the roses. He went home. He missed his family. He missed his mum. He missed his dad. And he came home and he walked through the... He saw the familiar sights. He came to his streets. He came to his neighbours. He came to his house and he walked down the pathway to his door and he opened the door and he went in and he ran into the kitchen and mum was there and he grabs his mum and he cries on his mum and she cries too. She says, I'm home, I'm home. And she says, where's your father? He says, I don't know where my father is. Should I know? He should be here. And his mother says, When your father knew that you went to prison, he promised me that he wasn't coming back until he found you. And all of a sudden, it comes back to the son that the old man that was kneeling beside his bed wasn't just any old man, it was his father. And his father had taken his place. Church, I want you to know today that Jesus has taken your place. When your name was called, the Savior stood up He let go, he stretched out, and he handed over. And you are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb.
Father in heaven, we just pause and we thank you so much for what you have done in sending your son to take our place, to take our shame, that our sorrows became his sorrows so that his life could become our life. We thank you that you have bridged the gap. We thank you that you have dealt with sin in your own body on the cross. And Father, we pray that we may take a hold of the saving arm of God today, that we may leave this place with assurance in the atoning blood of Jesus. I pray this prayer in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973-3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 612-4973-3456 Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au That is radio at the number 3ABN Australia all one word .org.au Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc. P.O. Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales, 2264, Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. short presentation on the history of the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. As we trace back our spiritual lineage to the early centuries, we find the Christian church a maligned religion. It was not popular. Many of the Christians in the early centuries paid the ultimate price for their faith with their lives. The Colosseum in Rome stands today as a testament of this fact. Under pagan Rome, The Christian church struggled along, but one thing was sure. The intensity of the persecution kept the church free from nominal and lukewarm Christians. If you were a Christian, you had to be all in. There was no middle ground. But in the fourth century, an event would come along that would change all of that dramatically. The conversion of Constantine changed the course of history for the whole of Christendom and the roots of that come down here to York, England. In 306 AD, Constantine was declared emperor here. His father, Constantinus, was in Britain from 305 to 306 AD and Constantine was with him until his death. He was then declared emperor, but it was not to be a smooth sailing. There were counterclaims to the emperorship from Licinius and Maxentius. And it was before a battle with Maxentius that Constantine felt he needed more help than just the soldiers he had, and so he sought the help of God. He believed he saw a cross in the sky and heard the words, by this sign you shall conquer. He took this as a sign to convert to Christianity and a major switch began to take place. Rome would go from being pagan to papal, from paganism to professed Christianity. Many historians debate the authenticity of Constantine's conversion. Was it a deep 
deep-rooted biblical conviction or was it a political ploy to keep a divided empire together? One thing is sure though, that after his conversion, practices crept into the church that previously had no place there. Temples that were pagan were changed to Christian. The Pantheon in Rome was changed into a Christian church. And the names of gods were changed to Christian saints. For example, Jupiter became Saint Peter, and the list goes on. While some were happy for these changes and welcomed the lack of persecution and their newfound status, there were many Christians all over Europe who resisted these changes. For them, the persecution continued as they stayed out of line with the Mother Church. These were Christians who were maintaining the pure apostolic faith that was handed down to them over the years. There were scattered groups of people all over Europe, in Northern Italy, in southern France, the Celtic church here in Britain, and in various other places. The Bible refers to them as the church in the wilderness in Revelation chapter 12, verses 6 and 14. They were not always the biggest, they were not always the largest, but God would always have a people that were true to him and that were faithful to his word. And so from this point on, two branches of the church would emerge the recognized, the mainstream, but the compromised church, and then the persecuted, often the smaller, but the pure church. The question for us today is, which one of these two are we a part of? May we never compromise truth for popularity. May we be faithful to God and to his word, no matter what the situation is. To view more episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Oh, God.
Thank you to the Wilds for bringing us that song, Are You Washed in the Blood? Coming up next, we have Salvation Medley with Angela Bryant-Brown. What are those things they say? Those horrible things they say? They say you're not real. Don't understand what I feel. How do I let them know to me the love you showed? They say that you're just a man. Your love they can't comprehend. Why you die on a tree to set sinners free? How do I let them to me the love you show when you wash my sins away that's why I praise you every day even before the world began you had a plan you looked through time Silver or 
Yes, I rather be his than have riches untold. Yes, I rather have Jesus than houses or land. Yes, I rather be by his name, his hands, than to be a queen of a vast domain, or be held in sensuous ways. I rather have Jesus. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.